You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Hello and welcome along. Glorious to see you again. How have you been keeping? It's March and spring is most certainly in the air. And while the world still has a journey to go before it's back to normal, I think we can all agree that we're getting there. Chins up all, the end is in sight. As for today's show, beautiful music. Two beautifully different movies. Beautiful radio. Even a beautiful return engagement with the wonderful Miss Brooke Darnell, who dropped in for a chat about Golden Age detectives. In fact, the only thing that could make this show any more beautiful is if, I don't know, the church quartet began to sing about a highly inappropriate product. Are you ready, quartet? All right, let's go. Drink to me, darling, not with thine eyes, but with pass-through ribbon Cause if you toast me with pass-through ribbon, I'll know that your love's sincere. That should be how everyone tests the sincerity of love. The beer that is splendid is the beer that is splendid. From 33 fine brews And if you serve me sparkling clear Perhaps your love, dear, I can't refuse I'm actually crying, this is so beautiful You can serve it with cold cuts and you're to please Serve it with a dab of tasty nippling cheese Now the food we're drinking, it has no fun Encore! Encore! Now, here's some obscure whatever sung by Bob Sinatra or something. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some they may go for cocaine I'm sure that if 
I took even one sniff It would bore me to riff Thickly too Yet I get a kick out of you I get a kick every time I see you standing there before me I get a kick though it's clear to see you obviously do not adore me I get no kick in a plane With some gal in the skies My idea nothing to do Yet I get a kick You give me a boot I get a kick out of you And that was I Get a Kick Out of You from Frank Sinatra. Well, with no further ado, let's see how those wits of yours have been keeping themselves. We're off to the What's My Line studio to listen in as the panel try to guess the identity of the mystery guest with the Hollywood pedigree. Can you get there before the panel do? Let's see. Prick up those ears, listen for the clues, and see if you can tell. Who the hell is that Hollywood legend? As you know, in the case of our mystery challenger, we dispense with preliminaries, get right down to the general questioning, which we will begin with Mr. Fred Allen. Uh, it's a foolish uh, move you've made, John. Uh, I uh, gather from the audience's reaction that, that you are very well known by sight to practically everybody. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> I gather... That you are not Sophie Tucker, by any chance. <laughs> uh, tell me, are you uh, identified with the entertainment world? Yes. Do you, are you currently employed? <laughs> I just, I'm looking for another job. I just... <laughs> I, uh, I haven't guessed. I went in the wrong theater tonight. I guessed the wrong theater coming in here. But uh, do you, uh, are you better known, uh, are you identified with motion pictures? Let me put it that way. Yes. With motion pictures. Yes. Are you a, uh, are you associated with uh, dramatic work in the motion picture field? No. <laughs> well, if you do comedy, occasionally it comes out sad. You have to <laughs> I'll leave that up to our guest if he would like to amend the answer and give you a qualified yes. <laughs> well, then I'm through. I was wrong, huh? Yes. <laughs> Are we to believe that our mystery guest has never had a serious moment? He's always been a comic, is that it? <laughs> and never a bride. Uh, do you do something apart from performing? Do you sing ever? Yes. 
would you be considered the kind of a comic that gets the girl? Yes. Is your hair thinning a little? Yes. I'll take a wild guess at this. Are you Bing Crosby? If my hunch is correct, uh, Dorothy, uh, Arlene couldn't have been more wrong if she had tried. Uh, <laughs> and I did. <laughs> uh, are you famous as well uh, for movie work? Are you equally famous for radio and television appearances? Yes. Uh, you mean on exactly equal equations? No, not equal equations. I, I would say principally in... Now, I know who it is, John. Don't throw me off. <laughs> Is your name associated as much with Bing Crosby as with possibly faith and charity? Ow! <laughs> Ow! Yeah. And are you... We'll break away there. Do you have a clue? You really should know after those final hints. But if you're still in the dark, don't worry. You have plenty of time to mull it over and I'll reveal the answer later in the show. Now, it was my pleasure this week to chat to my good pal, secret history of Hollywood researcher and that most... Clever of mademoiselles, Miss Brooke Darnell. Brooke happened to spy that during the golden age of Hollywood, two movies were produced that featured Dorothy Sayers' famous English detective, Lord Peter Whimsey, one from Britain and one from Hollywood. But are they any good? I caught up with Brooke for a swift little chat about the detectives we love from that period. Brooke Darnell, she's a very clever mademoiselle. When you need some information found, she's half librarian and half bloodhound. I'm joined today by the marvellous Miss Brooke Darnell. It's been so long since you've been on the show. How are you? How are you keeping? I'm good. I think it's been since last March. Might well be. You're right. I mean, God, we've had a whole pandemic between calls then. <laughs> That's quite an excuse, isn't it? Anyway, um, how, how is everything in... <laughs> For those who don't know, Brooke lives in Washington. Um, you couldn't, could say that things have been slightly disrupted there lately, but getting back to normal now? No, the fences are still up around work and the men with the machine guns are still uh, <laughs> posted that you have to go past. <laughs> to get in and we think we have things tough that's uh, crazy <laughs> how are the dogs are they okay yeah they're doing good good i've been uh, keeping up with their progress on instagram how is uh was it albie that had uh, an illness lately yeah he's got three more weeks of crate rest and then he can be free <laughs> uh, but he's dying to get outside isn't he like all of us he's very angry <laughs> he keeps pawing at the door and barking at me <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, you've joined today because um, I thought it would be great to, to speak to you again, and I think everyone would love to hear your voice again. And I asked you what, you know, have you been watching any older movies lately or did you have anything coming up? Yes. And you chose the Peter Whimsy films, didn't you? This is a really good topic to do because uh, <laughs> Peter Whimsy hasn't really had that many rides out on screen, has he? Yeah, there's a newer film f from the 80s. From the 80s? 
And what what was it? Do you know anything about it? Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. It's, it's almost like he's been kind of... He hasn't really moved with the times. I mean, he's not like... I mean, Poirot's still, still getting big film adaptations made, isn't he? And it has been since publication. But Peter Whimsey, he's, he's equally as clever, but doesn't seem to have um, made the cultural splash that, uh, that Poirot did. Are you a big fan? Oh, I love those books. I think they're fun. Mm, me too. Uh, um, I must admit, I haven't read them all, but um, I remember loving Whose Body. That's, uh, that's great. But the, the two films we've got today are very special because they were made in the Golden Age. First of all, 1935's The Silent Passenger, which was a British go at Peter Whimsey. And then five years later, uh, MGM had a go, didn't they, with um, Haunted Honeymoon? Some people called it Busman's Honeymoon. Or Busman's Holiday? Busman's Holiday. Well, I've got... There, there are so many titles for this film then. Busman's Holiday. Busman's Honeymoon, I've got. Um, I've got. And I've got Haunted Honeymoon. Haunted Honeymoon is the one I've seen. Well, that that title, anyway. Do you want to quickly run us through what you like about Peter Whimsy? Well, I like the character. Mm. Um, he's very quick-witted, very much like um, mm. the Thin Man, that type of character. Just very witty, and d- the words that he uses are fun. He's almost like a, a bit, a bit sort of Jeeves and Worcester, a bit Wodehouse, isn't he? Yes. A very, very urbane. And a lord as well, you know, <laughs> a peer of the realm. Mm-hmm. Um, I find him incredibly funny just just to listen to him talk. But um, as you, as you say, a genius and uh, one of the one of the one of the most fondly remembered, I think, uh, detectives of the golden age of detective fiction. But um, what I liked about the the films when you suggested them, 1935's The Silent Passenger. Um, they're just so different. These movies, aren't they? They are. They're like. You really do get the sense that um, the British one was, uh, well, the British one and the American one. I, I wouldn't have even recognised um, Peter Whimsey in the American one, to be honest. It's a, it's a very curious film. <laughs> the first one, The Silent Passenger, um, I was particularly drawn to because um, Peter Haddon stars as uh, Peter Whimsey. And it also stars John Loder, the Brighton Strangler, in the, one of the starring roles. Did you enjoy this film? That portrayal of Peter Whimsey was the better one. Mm. Yes, I totally agree with you. He He's really good, isn't he, Peter Haddon, in this? He is. Mm, he nails it. He seems to get the, uh, you know, the, he has the right countenance, he, he delivers the lines well. He's, plus, he's English. Uh, no <laughs> offence to Robert Montgomery, but that's one thing he's never going to be. <laughs> Just... Like the physical comedy of it, the way he like leans against the counter mm-hmm. when he's talking to the um the ho- the lady in the hotel, mm-hmm. just very um kind of floppy and you know not you know just very casual and yeah and likable mm. um that captured the books more. Yeah, definitely. Was this actually based on one of the actual stories? Do you know? Or was this an original screen take? I think that one was written for the film. Mm-hmm. And do you? Like the mystery in it, as a as a no. as a whim- <laughs> as a whimsy aficionado. I mean, I think you're more of a whimsy um, uh, expert than I am. But um, yeah, I, I must admit, I wasn't that taken with the with the mystery itself. But I found him really delightful. He sort of seemed a bit secondary in the film, didn't you find? He kind of disappears for long stretches so they can focus on 
the Brighton Strangler. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there was that wonderful part at the end with the ducks. Mm, yep, very good. Yep. <laughs> I'll put a clip in here. <laughs> and I did like Aubrey Mather as Bunter as well. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot to the film. No, it was really weird. It was like it took the whole film for them to get I just basically, I watched this a few weeks ago and all I remember from it is them travelling to get to where they are, to where they need to be. And then it was kind of five minutes there and then it was finished. Yeah, because you find out, you immediately find out who did it and then the story is just them trying to catch that person. Odd. It's almost like a missed opportunity, but I'm glad it exists, if you know what I mean, because it's a, it's a really good Peter Whimsy. It's just a shame. Well, I don't know how you feel about um, Haunted Honeymoon. I'm going to call it Haunted Honeymoon. You're going to call it Busman's Holiday. I think we're going to get slightly confused maybe. But um, I found the, the whimsy in the MGM film not at all like Peter Whimsy. Right. But I found the mystery a lot better. Yes. What do you think? Yes. Even just the setting of the Busman's Holiday was... Or haunted honeymoon, <laughs> um, like the opening scene where they're they're going into the well, not the opening scene, but they when they go into the countryside and there's the sheep and the cottages and mm-hmm. like just the, the whole look of it um, mm. felt so much more like the books. I love um, the golden age of Hollywood's takes on Britain. I just love them because they're they're so quaint and so picturesque. And then you had actual British films being made during that time, which were just really sort of grimy and <laughs> cheap looking, like Mother Riley films. Yeah, I prefer the Hollywood version. Well, it reminds me of like an Ealing Studio film. Mm. Yeah, that's very good, actually. Yeah, very good comparison. Yeah. So what did you think of Robert Montgomery, though, as Peter Whimsey? He was fine. I think that's the word, <laughs> isn't it? He, he didn't have... <laughs> he He... He did his job, <laughs> but he didn't have the character and, you know, he didn't draw you in mm. like the other Peter Whimsy. Mm. Yeah, he's kind of, um, I don't know what it is about Robert Montgomery. I just find him a little bit sort of asinine in lots of lots of films. I just feel like he, he, he kind of wanted to be a, a, a better, more successful actor than perhaps his talents would allow. But that's probably just me. <laughs> this, this was actually based on a... Um, on a say a story though wasn't it yes and i've read that book it follows along pretty well does it so if you you want a a good adaptation of the book Mm. um this film does it cool Um, and talking about the books i mean you say you've read them all right not all of them which ones stand out for you though well this one i remember very well because the the murder weapon was pretty ingenious what about uh, other detectives from the golden age of detective fiction, which is kind of, I think they'd sort of say it was between sort of 1900 and 1950, 1960, thereabouts. But which other detectives stand out for you, apart from Peter Whimsy, do you think? Well, The Thin Man. <laughs> I love those films so much. Oh, my God. I've been ill over the past week, and I thought to myself, how am I going to make myself feel better? I think I'm going to watch The Thin Man films. And I watched all six over two days, and... Oh, it's like a tonic for the soul. They're just so good, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Like, I, I like films like that, like um, Mr. Blanding's Dream House, where they're just like, you see the inside and there's all these like different contraptions and, yeah. you know, the different toasters and <laughs> like you see the way the kitchens are set up and it's just, it's so like, these are the things of the future, but it's not quite what we got. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. I like Zaza's water softeners. Um, do you, are you a big fan of Agatha Christie? I am. I, I, I sort of peg you as one. Yeah, I've read a lot of hers. Have you ever read the Harley Quinn stories? What were they about? Um, she did like a series of 12 short stories. And basically um, it was a, a little man, I can't remember the man's name now. And he sort of stumbles into these, uh, some are mysteries, some are like love intrigues and things. And um, this mysterious figure called Mr. Harley Quinn arrives some point during each story and sort of sets things right and then disappears again. He's like a supernatural um, do-gooder. Did you ever read those? I don't think so. Because I bought a, like a big box of them off eBay. <laughs> so I just read, the, I've read the ones that were in the, right. <laughs> the box that I got. So I've read the the ones where it's like a girl and a guy, they're a couple, and they like solve mysteries together. Uh, Tommy and Tuppence. Yes, yes. I love those. That's so good. Have you seen the TV series of that from the uh, from the eighties with Francesca Annis? I have not, but I think there was a newer ad- adaptation. There was. That's right. Uh, David Williams did it as well, didn't he? Yeah. That was good. Yeah. I don't think Agatha Christie's ever going away. I think she's always going to be with us. Like they, they seem to do a, a big budget TV adaptation of one of her stories every year for Christmas over here. Yeah, those are always fun. <laughs> well, uh, how about Mr. Parker Pine? Did you ever read any of those? No. What? what tell me about those. So um, that was Agatha Christie again. I think it's about ten short stories as well, and. He's basically like uh, he calls himself a heart specialist, but uh, what it is 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 he he sort of um, he puts this advert in a newspaper and people if if their heart is broken in some way or they're in any kind of trouble they they call him in and he looks like an accountant and he sort of turns up and like the the, the first story in the series is just a, a wife who's not attractive to her husband anymore so he comes and sort of fixes that relationship and there's one where like you know he he stops a murder from happening they're just like completely random but i, I love all her little like side series that she did apart from Poirot and Marple and stuff that's really good. You should check that out. <laughs> I've made a note of it. Okay, good. <laughs> well, um, Harold Huber, who was like this uh, this B-movie actor during the 30s and, and 40s, he actually made a Poirot radio series, which is pretty good, actually. So I'm going to play a couple of episodes of that on this episode. Um, well, look, I'll let you go because I know it's early there and... Um, You have a day ahead of you. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for appearing, Brooke. And it's always a pleasure. And um, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say we'll speak to you very soon. All right. See you then. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me. So deep in my heart That you're really a part of me I've got you Under my skin I tried so Not to give in I said to myself This affair Never will go so well But why should I try to resist when, baby, I know so well I've got you 
under my skin I'd sacrifice anything come what might For the sake of having you near In spite of a warning voice That comes in the night and repeats, repeats in my ear Don't you know, little fool, you never can win Use your mentality, wake up to reality But each time that I do, just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin. Cause I've got you under my skin. Anything come what might For the sake of having you near In spite of a warning voice That comes in the night And repeats how it yells in my ear Don't you know, little fool You never can win Why not use your mentality Step up, wake up to reality As that was Mr. Frank Sinatra for the second time today with I've Got You Under My Skin and special thanks to this week's guest, the peerless Miss Brooke Darnell. And if you want to pass on your well wishes to Brooke, you can drop her a line at brooke at attaboyclarence.com. She has her own email. Before we head into some movies for today, just time to tell you about a new edition of The Dark Pages. Yes, it's that time again. And what better way to see in those chilly evenings than with a dose of film noir? In the latest edition, Karen and the team take a look at HBO's new adaptation of Perry Mason, a deep dive into the noir movies of Edward G. Robinson, all the latest news about noir movies coming to DVD and Blu-ray, including a new edition of After the Thin Man, very exciting, a spotlight on 1947's Odd Man Out, plus all the noir treats heading to TCM in the next month. To grab your copy now, go to www.allthatnoir.com. They'll even give you a free copy to whet your appetite. Step into the shadows with the new edition of The Dark Pages. And speaking of noir, the new episode of All the Best Lines, the podcast in which I am a co-host, that drops this week, and me and my co-host, Smokey, my good friend, talk about the noir classic, 
Back, Out of the Past, starring Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, and Kirk Douglas. Did we love it, or did we absolutely adore it? Go and listen now and find out. On to movies. Now, I did not know what I was letting myself in for last week when I pressed play on 1940s Strange Cargo, variously described as an action-adventure movie, and yes, there are certainly action-adventure parts in this. I would call it more of an absolute mind-bending head of a movie, and one of the most uniquely fascinating experiments to have been made during the golden age of Hollywood. Now, what makes this so interesting is that it stars Clark Gable and Joan Crawford in the lead. Gable had just come off the back of Gone with the Wind, so he was molten hot at this point. Joan Crawford was just out of the women, so really at the height of her appeal. Now, why on earth did two of the biggest stars in the world choose to star in a very squalid, rather brutal tale of some primal island dwellers who are helped to escape a prison and then a jungle with the help of what can only be described as Jesus Christ in man's form? Yes, you heard me right. This is a movie in which Jesus Christ in the guise of Ian Hunter, breaks into a prison to help a gang of people escape and save their souls along the way. Strange cargo indeed. Here's a clip. 90 lashes, 16 months in solitary, 7 months in the bear pit, and 5 attempts to escape in 3 years. Don't you like it here, Vern? No. Does that answer it? You put things so clearly. Maybe we ought to give you a chance to make some new contacts. Outside the walls. Outside? Why not? Nature surrounded us with something stronger than walls, the jungle. You know about that, don't you, Vern? So it's tough. You've plugged up every hole I've ever made, but you know I'm going to make another one. I've heard men talk like that before. We are in a remote penal colony somewhere on some cursed island where notorious thief Vern, played by Clark Gable, is causing the warden all kinds of grief by trying to escape every five minutes. You can't win, Vern. Why try? And you've only got three years left. I'd try if I only had three minutes left. I'm a thief by profession, Grido, not a convict. There's nothing worse stealing around here except freedom. And I'm after some of that. His latest attempt comes when he sees and decides to have for his own local nightclub entertainer and is hinted at sex worker Julie, played by Joan Crawford. He breaks out of jail and makes for her bedroom, but is swiftly caught and taken back to jail. Thing is, the reason that Vern was able to escape was because a mysterious figure named Cambro took Vern's place in the lineup. In fact, Cambro seems to be exhibiting some very strange otherworldly powers. He knows every prisoner by name, can foretell when things are about to occur, such as changes in the weather, and seems to have in his pockets whatever's needed by the prisoners, whether that's food or money. He ain't got unearthly. He'll be back. I'll bet him. Because he said he would. Because he says something, does that make it so? It has so far. He said we'd reach that mining camp this afternoon, and we did. According to the map, we should have reached it. Three times we were lost, and each time he led us back to the trail. He stumbled on it. And when our tongues were hanging out from thirst, he stepped off the trail and found the brook. What was that, Marl? So he had a lucky day. Who is Cambro? A group of prisoners, including Vern and Cambro, make their escape from the prison and into the surrounding jungle where every kind of danger awaits. As the group make their way to freedom, having picked up the runaway Julie on their travels, Cambro gets to know each and every one of them intimately, revealing their darkest sides, and seems to absolve them of their most deep-rooted sins. 
eyes as they fight their way towards liberty. You threw the poison from my body into your own. I had bread and I would not share it. Or what man is there of you? Whom, if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? It's not too late. It's never too late. A moment ago, there was so much darkness, I was afraid. It's lighter now. My fear is gone. It brought me peace, Cambro. And rest. And if sometime things are said against me, you'll speak for me. I'll speak for you, Teles. Such a bizarre movie, I have to say. I'm not religious, but I was utterly gripped all the way through this because while this may sound like some ultra-corny, banner-waving, bash-you-across-the-head-with-messaging kind of story, the genius stroke is that it never leans too hard on its admittedly ridiculous premise. Now, every time you think this is going to get preachy, it wisely pulls back and turns into an action thriller again. I mean, I'm still flabbergasted that this movie exists. This is an action movie about Jesus and a bunch of convicts trying to escape the law. Let that sink in for a minute. If nothing else, it has to at least intrigue you, right? As I say... How did Clark Gable and Joan Crawford, arguably at their hottest, look at this thing and decide this was the best way to keep their stars in the Ascendant? Especially since their characters, has to be said, are not the nicest people in the world. Joan is actually as acidic as they get, at least for the first half of the movie. She's constantly being poured and propositioned by the slimy men in this, so naturally her suit of armor is very tough. When we meet her, she's become so embittered by men and the world that it takes some time for us to see the humanity in her and gable does himself no favors at all in this in fact he's one of the most despicably unlikable characters in this until the final curtain he's no hero very much the antithesis of a hero and i think that that's why i'm so stunned by this this is a film that shouldn't work who thought to make a taut brutal prison escape drama and put jesus christ in there who thought of Clark Gable and Joan Crawford when casting The Dregs of Humanity? And yet this really works. It works as an allegory. It works as a human drama. It works as an action film. It supernaturally seems to keep its balance between all these different genres without ever getting preachy or exploitative. It's kind of a miracle of a film, and my heart is warmed by the fact that something this experimental and batch crazy exists in the world. And I haven't even mentioned yet that the supporting cast includes Ian Hunter, Peter Lorre, Paul Lucas, Albert Decker, J. Edward Bromberg, and Eduardo Cinelli. Honestly, check out 1940's Strange Cargo. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. Flipping things right the way around now, let's take a trip on over to Blighty in the company of Agatha Christie's most famous creation, Hercule Poirot. Yes, way before David Suchet. Way before Kenneth Branagh, Peter Ustinov, Tony Randall. All the way back to the 1930s, the first screen Poirot was established in the guise of Austin Trevor, who played him in three movies. The first of these was Alibi from 1931, followed by Black Coffee in the same year. Both of those are lost movies now, but we do have the third one, a 1934 adaptation of Christie novel Lord Edgware Dies, starring Austin Trevor as Poirot, alongside Richard Cooper as Captain Hastings, and John Turnbull 
as Inspector Jap. And here's a clip. Would you borrow, I believe? At your service, Lady Oh, you Frenchmen are so cute. I just love your Parisian manners. And our English policeman, I hope. Oh, why, yes. My friend Captain Hastings. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Poirot, I want to consult you. But certainly, madame. At what hour shall I call on you tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow means nothing in my life. Only the present comes. Why not now? By all means, if you wish. We should be quite undisturbed in there. Former actress Lady Edgware meets Poirot at a party and begs her to talk to her husband, Lord Edgware, in order to convince him to give her a divorce so that she can remarry. Poirot agrees and talks to Lord Edgware, but discovers that he also wants a divorce and has not been holding up proceedings, as Poirot was told. All of a sudden, Lord Edgware is brutally killed by someone claiming to be Lady Edgware. As Poirot begins to investigate this murder, Lady Edgware also turns up dead. What is happening? Who has killed this divorcing couple and why? Mr. Poirot, I must speak to you. Mademoiselle? On the day before my father was killed, you and Captain Hastings came to see him, didn't you? Yes, Mademoiselle. Why did he send for you? Mademoiselle, what passed between Lord Edgware and ourselves was in confidence. Then it was about, I mean, it must have been something to do with the family. I'm his daughter. I have a right to know what my father dreaded just before his death. Were you so fond of your father, mademoiselle? Fond of him? I hated him. Very intrigued by this movie. I'm a huge Poirot nerd. I honestly think that David Suchet's performance as Poirot is one of the greatest and most complete portrayals of any character ever committed to screen. I am consistently intrigued by other versions, if not always impressed. I do not love Albert Finney. Not a great fan of Ustinov. Didn't click with Tony Randall. Went into this feeling very trepidatious. Now, off the bat, Austin Trevor looks nothing like Hercule Poirot. He's very tall. He's clean-shaven. Quite dashing. I mean, Agatha Christie describes Poirot quite definitively in her books. So I'm not misinterpreting the look in any way. Austin Trevor looks very much like a matinee idol. However, what he lacks in the looks department, he more than makes up for in the characterization. He is wonderful as Poirot, but you will have to get over the fact that he looks nothing like him. The way I got on board was to think of this more as a standalone murder mystery and not some faithful Poirot adaptation. So what about the mystery itself? Well, this is a very well put together adaptation of Christie's stories. Easy to follow, it's never boring, and it's so clever in the way it deals out the clues. It's beautifully done. It does have that creaky kind of early 30s British vibe to it. It's not as glossy as a Hollywood picture, and the sound at times is a little rough. But I was never bored, and there is something nice and earthy about taking these murder mysteries out of Hollywood sometimes. After all, that's what made the Suchet series work so well, right? So this film was a lovely little surprise, really, and definitely served the Christie fanatic in me. Do check it out if you're a Poirot nut like I am. It's well worth your time. That's 1934's Lord Edgware Dies. Well, as I said during my chat with Brooke earlier in the show, all the way back in 1945, Harold Huber 
took the title role in an American radio series called The Adventures of Hercule Poirot, a series of specially written radio mysteries that perfectly marry the genius of the detective with the conventions of old-time radio. Now, you may be thinking that this was some hastily concocted knockoff that Christie herself couldn't stand. Not so. In fact, not only did Christie herself sign off on the project, she also made an appearance in the very first episode a new adventure called The Case of the Careless Victim. We'll hear that tale right now, starring Harold Huber as Poirot and featuring Miss Agatha Christie herself, who broadcasts not only her endorsement of the series, but her well wishes for its success. Off we go then for an adventure with Hercule Poirot entitled The Case of the Careless Victim. See you afterwards. Agatha Christie's Poirot. <laughs> From the thrill-packed pages of Agatha Christie's unforgettable stories of corpses, clues, and crime, Mutual Now brings you, complete with bowler hat and brave mustache, your favorite detective, Hercule Poirot, starring Harold Huber in The Case of the Careless Victim. Before meeting Hercule Poirot in his first American adventure, it seems only fitting for the millions of faithful readers who have followed the little Belgian detective's career in book form to meet the famous lady who created this famous character. So it is our privilege to present a message from Agatha Christie introducing Hercule Poirot from London, England. The next voice you hear will be Miss Agatha Christie's. Go ahead, London. I feel that this is an occasion that would have appealed to Hercule Poirot. He would have done justice to the inauguration of this radio program, and he might even have made it seem something of an international event. However, as he is heavily engaged on an investigation, about which you will hear in due course, I must, as one of his oldest friends, deputize for him. The great man has his little foibles, but really, I have the greatest affection for him, and it is a source of continuing satisfaction to me that there has been such a generous response to his appearance on my books, and I hope that his new career on the radio will make many new friends for him among a wider public. Thank you, Miss Agatha Christie. And now, Mutual presents Hercule Poirot in his first American adventure, The Case of the Careless Victim. Mademoiselle? Huh? This is the Cozy Home Apartment Renting Agency. Well, we got something to rent, yeah. I have the desire to rent an apartment. Who hasn't? Uh, please, mademoiselle, do not jest. Hello, I have with me a brief dossier of my requirements. Please to read it. Well, all right. Uh, gentleman desires the bright, sun sunshining apartment of a reasonable quietness near the heart of the city. Should be furnished with the utmost charm, friendship, provincial, if possible. Price is of no consequence as long as it is very reasonable. Please communicate with me at the Hotel Windsor, Hercules P. O-I-R-O-T. Poirot. No, 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 mademoiselle. The name is Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Well, I wish you luck, Mr. Poirot. Well, finding an apartment, mademoiselle, is not a matter of luck. 
It is a matter of employing the little grey cells. If you can find an apartment for me, please do me the kindness to inform me. Sure, if you'll do something for me. And what is that? If you can find an apartment for me, please do me the kindness to inform me. Going up. Floor, please. Number five. You are new here, no? Uh, yes, I only came on yesterday. You're Mr. Perot, aren't you? Poirot. Oh, Perot, uh, one of the boys pointed you out. Hey, yes, sir. Fifth floor. Oh, oh, a thousand apologies, madame. I'm not tall. It was entirely my fault. Uh, madame appears troubled. Uh, perhaps I may be of some slight assistance. No, I... Well, if you're sure you don't mind. But of course not. You see, it's my door. It won't open. And where is this alternate door? It's eh? right down the corridor, room 515. If I may have the key. But that's just it. The door isn't locked. I left it open only ten minutes ago. Indeed. Madame is very trusting, eh? Well, here it is. Mm-hmm. You see, it's, it's stuck. It won't budge. It is not precisely stuck, madame. It gives a trifle. This door is barricaded. Oh, my goodness. Ah, voila, she moves, eh? Ah. Oh, thanks a million. Now, what do you suppose... No, wait, madame. Perhaps it is better if I look first. Ah, alas, it is as I have feared. What is it? You do not know? Look. Oh, it's a man. It's he. It's he. Oui, madame. He has been strangled. This is murder. Zidelor, I must compliment you, madame. Your color is excellent, and you did not even commence to faint. For one who... I don't fall apart in a crisis, if that's what you mean. And furthermore, I'm not madame. I'm mademoiselle, by choice. Miss Abigail Fresher. And now, if you'll get that uh, corpse out of here, I'd like to sit down. That I regret I cannot do, mademoiselle. The body must not be touched before the police arrive. Police? Well, yes, of course, the police. I am calling them now. Hello, hello. Ah, Inspector Stevens. It is I, Hercule Poirot. Alas, no. I have not yet found the apartment. But I have found something that perhaps more interest. A corpse. Mm, right here in my hotel. Room number... 515. Uh, number 515. Mademoiselle! What are you doing with the body? Nothing. I was just trying to see his face. You will have that opportunity later. Pardon, Inspector. We are room 515. Bien. We shall expect you immediately. Bien, Miss Fresher. Now that you have observed the face of this unfortunate one, perhaps you will be good enough to tell me who he is. I certainly will not. I'll wait for the police and let them ask the questions. As you desire, mademoiselle. I merely wish to point out one thing. It is you the police will question first. Me? But of course. You are the most likely suspect, no? All right. What do you want to know? First, what are you doing here in this hotel? Why, I've lived here for ten solid years, ever since I left West Costigo, Maine. And what do you do? What is your occupation? Why, uh, I don't have any occupation. I've got a little income, and I like it here in New York, and the last few years I've been doing war work, uh, Red Cross, and things like that. You seem a trifle vague, mademoiselle. Now, about this man. Who is he? I don't know. I never saw him before in a life. Mademoiselle, I advise you to consider your answers with care. Do not forget, a man lies dead in this room. I can't help that. I don't know who he is or how he got here. I told you I was out of the room for ten minutes. That may be, Miss Trasher, but it does not help you. This man has been dead for at least one hour. How do you know? If you will touch the body, you will observe it is already beginning to cool. Therefore, mademoiselle, if you left this room only ten minutes ago, your situation is indeed grave. For this man was already dead. Oh, but 
I couldn't have done it. So? And why not? Because his body was lying right across the doorway. You know perfectly well I couldn't get out through this doorway and still leave a body wedged against it. Belgian surety, indeed. Mm, very good, mademoiselle. But you could have murdered him in here, make your departure by way of this fire escape through the room overhead, and come down inside the building to this corridor where you so innocently made my acquaintance. You see, there is evidence that the fire escape has but recently been used. Now it is not so amusing, eh? Oh, I don't care. I had nothing to do with this. I know you detectives. You're out to get a suspect. And just because a man was murdered in my room, gently, you... Gently, gently, mademoiselle. All is not lost. Fortunately, you deal with Hercule Poirot, who goes one step beyond the obvious. You see, this poor man was not murdered in your room. He was killed in the room overhead. But why? Why kill him upstairs and leave him on my doorstep? That, mademoiselle, we shall discover in due course. <laughs> Mr. Perot, now that you've got the corpse safely locked in my room and us outside, what am I supposed to do? Sleep on the fire escape? I do not think that will be necessary, mademoiselle. You are coming with me to the lobby where we shall wait for my friend, Inspector Stevens. He will see that you are comfortably sheltered for the night. Oh. Uh, tell me, Mr. Perot, how did you figure out that the murder took place upstairs? Is it not apparent, Miss Trasher? Uh, please to squeeze the bell for the elevator. I look out of your window and observe the fire escapes. And what do I find? Everywhere the dust reposes peacefully. Well, naturally. The help is too busy to polish fire escapes. Ah, mademoiselle, but on one stairway, the one leading up from your window, all is disarranged. There is a broad, clear path through the dust, and it is precisely the width of a human body. And since the path extends only to the floor above, it is obvious the body has been dragged down from room 615. Also, on the garments of the dead man, on the trousers, the left elbow, and across the shoulders, there are unmistakable traces of rust. Ah, voila, the elevator. Go on down. Monsieur, would you be good enough to explain why you are so long in arriving? Huh? Oh, uh, it's a salt car. Every once in a while it goes on a fritz. Come on. On the fritz? Uh, out of order. Yeah, it got stuck on the ninth. You have been on the ninth floor all this time? Yeah, that's right. That is difficult to believe. Why? Because the indicator has been pointing to the basement. Ah, oh, that indicator. As soon as anything goes wrong, it flops. I am not so sure that is true of the indicator. But unquestionably, monsieur, it is true of the too clever murder. As soon as anything goes wrong, it flops. Dear Inspector Stevens, there is the situation. An unknown man strangled to death in one room and dragged down the fire escape to another. Poirot, this body is the person I think it is. The commissioner will have my head. Ah, mon ami, forgive me, you seem agitated. And we are warned, too. I assigned my best man to guard him. The smartest cop in my force, Sam Trimble. Good Lord, Poirot, there'll be an international scandal. Gently, mon ami, you go too fast, even for Hercule Poirot. Oh. Who is this magnificent figure of international importance? Parrish, Jonathan Parrish. Parrish? Ah, we, the name rings a bell. He is the big currency expert, eh? That's right. He's on his way to Europe to set up a new paper currency for the liberated countries. Checked in at the Windsor today, was supposed to pick up some papers, dyes and inks, and then hop a bomber tonight. The fifth floor, please. An enormous undertaking, and one of great importance. And I was responsible for his safety. He's supposed to be an eccentric sort of guy, and no photographs, no publicity. Trimble was the only man in the force who knew him at all, and Trimble failed. Do you see what this means, Poirot? I see only this, my friend. We have arrived at the first step in the solution of this distressing murder. For now, we know the motive. This way, Inspector. This is the room. Uh, Mademoiselle Trasher, your key. Here you are. I'll never live this down. Oh, you exaggerate, mon ami. Even the best of men sometimes fail. Regard, Inspector. Here is your corpse. Hmm. 
They certainly did a job. Thunderation. You are shocked, monsieur. Poirot, do you realize what's happened? But of course, Inspector. It is not Jonathan Parrish who has been murdered, but your own faithful policeman, Sam Trimble. Poirot, that's not very funny. You knew it all the time. Pardon, mon ami. I knew nothing of the sort. But you distinctly told me. No, Inspector. You told me. To me, the dead man was an unknown corpse. It could be anyone. But when you speak of two men, one a wealthy financier of international importance, the other a police officer... By employing the little gray cells, it is not difficult to conclude that the corpse with the large, high, comfortable shoes and the plain suit is the policeman. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. Monsieur, there is no time now for the profuse apologies. Oh, you're right. I've got to get to Paris at once. The poor guy doesn't even know his bodyguard's gone. Hello, hello. Operator, what room is Jonathan Parrish in? Huh? 615. Hold on. Oh, that's the room directly over this one where Trimble was killed. Precisely. Operator, let me talk to Mr. Parrish. I think you will find the gentleman does not answer. Why not? Oh, obviously, he would not witness a murder without reporting it. On the other hand, he too may... Good Lord, Poirot, do you think he's dead too? We know he received a warning from Hillary Kent. I do not follow you, mon ami. Huh? Oh, I don't blame him. Hillary Kent is a criminal egomaniac. Ah, one who commits crime cheaply for the pleasure of battling the police, eh? Exactly. Well, this Hillary Kent, or somebody who calls himself Hillary Kent, is one of those guys... He pulled off a few clever jobs and got away with them. We don't know anything about him, but whoever he is, he's got to get his thrill out of every job. So he makes it a rule to warn his victim. Ah, we. Oui. I know well the type. And Monsieur Parrish, I take it, has received such a warning. Right. Now you see why I assign my best man. Yeah, but now we must hasten upstairs to Monsieur Parrish's room. Already it may be too late. Yeah, I'll go too. I don't want to stay here with this body. You'll stay right here, Miss Thresher, until I if give you permission. Now, if you do not mind, myself, I am not averse to Miss Thresher's company. I find her very intriguing. But naturally, you did not expect the murderer to sit down and wait for us. You will have to employ the bosky. Remember, Miss Thrasher, you are not to touch anything. It's perfectly all right. I'm wearing gloves. The inspector is thinking of fingerprints. Why? I do not think he will find any. Monsieur Kent, or whoever the killer may be, is too clever to leave any such traces. Well, maybe. But I want to be sure we don't lose even the tiniest clue. An excellent approach, mon ami. There are many interesting things we may learn here about Monsieur Paris. He certainly gets around a lot. We, oui, the labels on his luggage are from the four corners of the earth. Miss Thrasher, I said you're not to touch anything. Oh, for goodness sake, it's only a book. Books may be of great significance. Ah, we. Oui. This one, for example. It is no ordinary book. It is a stamp album of great value. Some of these stamps are almost without price. Ah, ah, very interesting. This Guatemala blue... Put up your hands! All of you! Thunderation! Don't move! I said don't move! Have no fear, monsieur. I will not dispute the authority of your gun. Mister, you can't get away with this. Put your gun down and talk fast. Who the devil are you? But obviously, Inspector, this is the man we seek. Monsieur Jonathan Parrish. That's just who I am. All right, speak up. Which one of you is Hillary Kent? Hillary Kent? Yes. Well, now, wait a minute, Mr. Parrish. You've got this all wrong. I'm Inspector Stevens, Homicide Squad, and this is Hercule Poirot, the famous Belgian detective. Ah, so you say. You don't look like policemen to me, particularly that little squirt with a silly mustache. Eh? You stay right where you are till I check on you. Eh bien, Monsieur Parrish, now that you are satisfied as to our identity... Well, I've heard of you, of course. You're supposed to be the greatest French detective in the world. Oh, always people say that about me, monsieur, but it is not entirely true. I'm not French. I'm Belgian. Hmm. Well, I wish you'd all get out of here and leave me alone. 
I'm expecting my daughter, and I don't want her running into a room full of policemen. But, monsieur, you are in great danger. You must be protected every moment. You offering me police protection? <laughs> not worth a hoot. I beg your pardon. That's what I said, not worth a hoot. I have protection. Some detective they assigned to me. Where is he? He is dead. When? He was murdered in this very room while protecting you. Therefore, if you do not object too violently, I shall undertake to protect you until you step aboard your airplane. All right, all right, stay. I don't know how long it'll be. I'm just waiting for one little parcel to be delivered. Then I'm off. Monsieur's taking with him much equipment? Yes, quite a load. I've already sent most of it off to the airport. Ah, bon. That is good. Miss, don't eat that chocolate. It may be poison. Oh, nonsense. This candy isn't poisoned. I wouldn't be too sure. That box of candy supposedly came from my daughter, Laura. It was delivered a little while ago. But you suspect she did not send it? Well, she's supposed to come here in person. Should be here now, in fact. So why should she send it? You are very shrewd, mon ami. Uh, oh, excuse me. Wait a minute, Johnny. Come back here. What do you want? Uh, nothing. I, I, I just wanted to see if Mr. Parrish got his extra laundry box okay. Yes, yes, I received it. Okay, excuse me. I uh, picked up a few more things to take along, special dyes and inks. We'll just about fill up that laundry box. Uh, excuse me, I've got to go into the bedroom and finish that. Crusty old bird, isn't he? How would you be if you knew somebody was out to kill you? No wonder he's jittery. Ah, he is irritable and nervous. That perhaps explains it. Explains what? Why he wears upon his feet that unique pair of socks, one of which is green and the other brown. All right, if a man wants to be eccentric, let him be. I've still got a murderer to catch. Do you want to come along? No, Inspector. I have attached myself to Monsieur Parrish, and I propose to see that... Come in. Inspector... One of the men found this on the sidewalk outside the hotel. Huh? Thought you might want to take a look at it before turning it into the lost and found. Okay, Brady, thanks. Huh. Ladies' purse. Usual assortment of stuff. Cosmetics, perfume, change, keys. You make any of a poirot? Oh, sacre bleu. What is it? His initials, L.P. Uh, Monsieur Paris. Eh? What did you say was the name of your charming daughter? Laura. Oh, Lord. L.P. Laura Parrish. Poirot, where are you going? I have a little idea. Uh, Mademoiselle Fraser, please do accompany me. How about Mr. Parrish? You were so attached to him. I have become momentarily detached. I leave him in your care, Inspector. Protect him with the apple of your eye. <laughs> be the first time you have left the elevator unattended, Monsieur Jandy. Come along. Mr. Perrault, you're wasting your time in this basement, believe me. Nevertheless, it interests me. Please to light the way. There's nothing here, just a lot of ash cans. One moment. What is behind this door? Well, that's the laundry bin. We keep the solid uh, soil linen in there. You won't find anything in there. We shall take one brief glance, eh? There you see. Nothing but a pile of dirty sheets and pillowcases. Good gracious, what a laundry bill they must have. And now, let us proceed to... One moment. What is it? Sacre bleu protruding from under these sheets. <gasps> Holy cow. A foot, a small foot. This is what I feel. Look! Ah, it moves. Then we are not too late. Quickly, monsieur, help me to uncover her. That's all I know, Mr. Farrell. I was walking along the street toward the hotel... Just as I passed the alley, I was pulled in. I tried to scream, but something was pressed against my mouth. Chloroform, Miss Parrish. Oh. Had you seen your assailant, you would have seen Hillary Kent. Hello, Miss Parrish. You are most fortunate. Another few minutes under those linens, and who knows? Voila. Here is the room of your father. Inspector Stevens, here is Miss Parrish. 
Oh, well, that's a relief. Come in. I was afraid, Poirot, you'd turn up with a body. How'd you manage to find her? That is not important now. We have found her. But we seem to have lost the father. Oh, yes. Uh, Miss Parrish, I'm sorry. Your father's terribly upset about you. But his material was delivered and he had to rush off to the airport. Oh, no. Don't tell me I missed him after all this. Ah, ma pauvre petite. We have neglected oh, I... you, eh? Uh, Miss Trasher, your room is now free of corpses. Please take Mademoiselle Paris down and extend to her the first aid. Come along, Nora. Thank you. Inspector, I hope you do not later have cause to regret that you permitted Paris to go off to the airport unprotected. He'll be all right. Besides, I've got a job to do here, although, frankly, I'm in a complete fog. I can't make head or tail of the whole business. No, Stevens. The head and the tail we have. Why? Yes, it is merely a fragment of the middle that we still lack. Well, who is it? Hey, well, where are you going? To see how Miss Parrish is. And to telephone the airport to see that Mr. Parrish receives the proper attention. Au revoir. <laughs> Where are you taking me now? I'd like oh, to Mr. have some... Mr. Perot. Mr. Perot. Hello? Someone calls? It's Johnny in that parked car. Uh, Mr. Perot, I got a message for you from Inspector Stevens. He rushed off a minute ago. From Stevens? What is it? What is the message? He says he just got wait that Mr. Parrish has been seriously hurt in an automobile accident on North Salem Road. Um, this is too much. Uh, you ought to get there as fast as you can. Here's the address. 52 North Salem Road. Monsieur, your duties for the day are over. Yeah. And this is your vehicle? Yeah, why? There is no time to seek a taxi, so I will impose on your kindness. Miss Thresher, quickly, please. Okay. North Salem Road, right? No, to the airport. What? But Mr. Parrish isn't at the airport. He's injured on North Salem Road. No, mademoiselle. That is what I was intended to believe. Do you not think so, Johnny? He is not there, I assure you. How do you know? Well, North Salem Road is not on the way to the airport. It is in the opposite direction. This is merely a trick to keep us from the flying field. We must hurry there before it is too late. Well, the airplane is still there, but I don't see anything amiss. Voila, over there. Parrish, as large as life. Yeah, that's him, all right. Come along, please. Uh-uh, both of you. Uh, Monsieur Parrish. Monsieur Farrell. My daughter. She, she is at the hotel, Monsieur Rest. Oh. She has had a small misadventure, but she is entirely safe. Oh, thank heaven. You are relieved, eh? Am I? I, I don't think I'd have gotten on that plane if you hadn't found her. Fortunately, I didn't have to. They've been delayed a little. Poirot. Inspector Stevens, I knew you would not walk into the trap. Yeah, but as usual, you beat me to it. I was halfway out to North Salem Road before I realized what was cooking. Eh bien, here is Mr. Parrish safe and sound, eh? I suggest the bummer be inspected with great care. There may be sabotage. Good idea. Also, have all the doors of this building guarded. Uh, Mr. Perot, do I have to hang around here? But of course, Johnny. We may require you for our return trip. Oh, Mr. Parrish, here is your pilot who approaches. Oh, we're ready now, Mr. Parrish. Uh, thank you. Oh, Captain, here comes my luggage. Will you see that it gets aboard? All right, sir. And be especially careful of that wooden crate. <laughs> well, goodbye, Inspector. I must admit, you've been extremely helpful, and I'm much obliged. Not at all. Goodbye, and happy landing. Treasure. Goodbye, sir. Sure, Poirot, it's been a privilege to know you. I'm only sorry I couldn't remain to see you break the case. But you have, monsieur. I beg your pardon? The case? It is broken. Inspector, meet Hillary Kent, the gentleman to whom you have just wished bon voyage. Hillary Kent? You're a mad, Poirot. Good gracious, I thought he was Paris. And that wooden crate, which I have waited so long to see, it is not to be moved, Inspector. Why not? Because, mon ami, it contains the body of Jonathan Parrish. 
Business, but the plane circling about give one the feeling of flying, eh? Oh, the feeling I've got is that fine gives you. Keep me from it. Oh, that is natural. I, too, do not like murder, Miss Thresher. Ah, Inspector Stevens, everything is taken care of? Yeah, they're taking Kent away now. Then perhaps you will join us in a little supper. No, thanks, Poirot. I've got to get back. I uh, just dropped over to ask you a few questions. For example? Well, when did you first suspect that Kent was impersonating Parrish? Almost from the start. When we enter the room of Monsieur Parrish, what do we find? Eh? An amazing paradox. On the one hand, we have a man who is an ardent stamp collector whose album is in perfect order. Each stamp, each shade of stamp, precisely in its proper place, eh? Except the most valuable one of all. A Guatemala blue reposing among American three-cent stamps. Later, when I look at his socks, one green and one brown, I am certain. The man in the room is colorblind. And therefore not perish the stamp collector. More important than that, he cannot be perished the currency expert who is to select the colors and shades of the new paper money. Eh? Therefore, if the man in the room is not Parrish, who is he? Obviously, Hillary Kent. Then why didn't you arrest him right away? Because without a body, one cannot prove a murder. And I felt sure Monsieur Kent would lead me to the body. Then you weren't guarding him, you were watching him. Precisely. Well, you weren't so smart. When you let him out of your sight, he might have gotten away in the plane. Not at all. When I called the airport, it was to make sure that the plane would not leave until I gave the word. You know everything, don't you? Some things are obvious, Mademoiselle. We can suppose Hilary Kent discovers the nature of the mission Monsieur Parrish is engaged in. Ah, what a magnificent opportunity for a swindle, eh? Perhaps the greatest in history. To remove Jonathan Parrish, fly to Europe as Parrish, deliver the papers, uh, the formulas, the dies to the proper authorities, and then, at the moment juste, counterfeit the new currency and reap a huge fortune. Jumping codfish. The man must be mad. Perhaps, mademoiselle, but he is also a genius, eh? He learns that Parrish is at the Hotel Windsor in room 615. He knocks on the door. Parrish admits him and is at once strangled to death, eh? But the body, ah, that must be disposed of. Where no one will find it. There is but one thing to do. Take the body to Europe in the very packing case which stands in the room. Then you just guessed where the body was. No, no, Inspector. There was proof in the room. You remember the second laundry box which Hillary can't ask for? This is for some special links, he says to us, which I have only not purchased. Obviously, this is a lie. On such a mission, one does not purchase supplies at the last minute, eh? Hence, I know that these inks and dyes have been removed from some other box or kite to make room for the body. Gracious, it's as plain as the nose on my face. Uh, what about Laura Parrish? Oh, I've got that figured out. She calls up and says to Kent, Pop, I'm coming over. Of course, he can't allow that or the jig's up, so he gets down to the alley and eliminates her. Right, Poirot? Exactly. As for poor Tremble, he has been with Parrish. He knows him when he knocks on the door and Kent appeals. He demands to see Parrish. Kent kills him, and since the packing case is already occupied, drags him down to Miss Thresher's room. That was his big mistake. He should never have started up with me. <coughs> Excuse me for a minute. I think that's the morgue wagon pulling in. Uh, Mademoiselle, may I ask you a question of a personal nature? Fire away. Uh, Mademoiselle Abby, you are not now engaged in a business enterprise. No. Eh? Are you fluent with the shorthand and the typewriter? Why, yes. Oh. Mademoiselle, I find you both intelligent and amusing. A rare combination in a woman. Moreover, I am in great need of a secretary with your superb qualifications. Why, Mr. Perrault? Oh, you do not yet employ the little place cells to the best advantage. Nevertheless, if you are interested... Oh, Mr. Poirot, for ten years I've been devouring detective stories, and you ask me if I'm interested. 
Chief, you've got a secretary. Well, Poirot, they're taking Kent away now. I guess that winds up the case. Not quite, Inspector. Tell me, uh, where does Monsieur Kent reside? We found a lease on him for an apartment in Gramercy Park. That is a good neighborhood? Oh, swell. It's right in the heart of the city. But why do you ask? I do not think Monsieur Kent will need an apartment for some time. But I do. You see, my friends, it is as I have said. To find an apartment in New York City is the essence of simplicity. One has only to solve two murders. And that was Harold Huber as Hercule Poirot in The Case of the Careless Victim, also starring Agatha Christie herself. Wonderful. Just time to find out who the hell that Hollywood legend was. Now I know who it is, John. Don't throw me off. (laughs) Uh, Is your name associated as much with Bing Crosby as with possibly faith and charity? Ow! (laughs) Ow! And are you Bob Hope? (laughs) Yes, it was Bob Hope, of course. The Crosby clue gave it away, no doubt. Funny fact, when he arrives on stage during that episode, he signs the chalkboard as Bing Crosby. Go and watch it, it's on YouTube. Just time to remind you, if you haven't already, to sign up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret and register for this weekend's classic movie pub quiz. All the details are on Patreon, as well as the new episode of Queens of Cinema, which tells the story of animation pioneer Lotte Reiniger. You can find all that, plus almost a hundred bonus editions of this podcast, and much, much more. Sign up now at patreon.com slash attaboysecret, or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Until we speak again, then, take amazing care of yourself, folks, and those you love. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews and ebooks. and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.